Okay, hello and welcome to the 28th episode of the Bright and Left Radio Show. As this is episode 28, and 28 is a perfect number with all its factors adding up to create itself, we're going to use this magical moment to uh, take a bit of introspection into Brighton Left itself, as we're at a moment where Brighton Left is definitely going under some quite uh, radical change in its own way. We've been publishing an article a day for quite a bit now, and uh, we're finally starting to see a slight increase in our viewing figures. Hopefully it will transfer to the radio show as well. So, uh, to go overgo this, you have your host, me, Thomas Sood. And me, Jack Cross. And uh, first, as Jack is here, let's talk about his recent uh, series of articles on the history of Spain. So, Jack, can you take us through uh, what, um, uh, what the history of Spain was, at, why you decided to do it, etc.? Um, but, yeah. Well, I, I decided to look at the history of, um, of Spain because it's a fascinating story of a nation. If you look at, say, midway through the 16th century... It had a nation that had pretty much everything a nation could want at the time. Colonies, a lot of wealth, a powerful army, a secure monarchy, no infighting within the country, and a whole lot of influence in Europe. Now, if you now slowly you see through the next hundred years that power slowly gets eroded. The empire might grow, but the economic problems of the nation grow and grow and grow. I mean, and then if you go into the, say, look at, I mean, even after a dynasty change from the Habsburgs to the Bourbons, they can't solve the problems either. You then go into the 1800s when their country is subject to a um, military occupation by, the, um, by, ne- by Napoleonic France, uh, which leads to the, to the Peninsular War, the first of four wars fought within Spain during the 1800s, which had a devastating effect on the country. And this, um, I mean, and by the and by 1898, like Spanish colonialism was over. Its last colonies were stripped from it in the Spanish Spanish um, American War. And this is, I think, a fascinating tale of a country that once had the biggest empire in the world in the early in the mid-1600s, going from that to being a degenerate, bankrupt power with nothing to show for. So, if you were to say a main cause which um, led to this demise, what would you put it as? Well, I think it's a combination of the huge economic problems which, which grew and grew over hundreds of years that the, the no monarch was really uh, able to solve. Also, the the rise of other powers. I mean, during the seventeen hundreds, like they were subject to the rise of the of the great Louis the Fourteenth of France, who would come to dominate Europe. The British, of course, would catch up with the Spanish in terms of um, colonial power. The Austrians would rise up. The Prussians, everyone else, the Russians, like into the eighteen hundreds, and the French again, and 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 they were just left behind. I mean, also they were. A slightly old-fashioned nation, for um, compared to other na- to a lot of the others. Uh, like I mean, obviously we aren't technically not a secular nation today, but if you look at Spain in the mid 1800s, I mean, Catholic institutions in like through the Spanish Inquisition, like had huge, huge power um, over the country, which I think just which did not help modernization. 
I mean, and this also the rise of the United States, like having a huge power next door to some weak, feeble colonies who are trying to get independence is never a good thing for you. And so that's what I put down to the demise of Spain. Very interesting. A failure to change and adapt leading to one's ultimate demise. Perhaps, uh, so talking about changing and adapting. Uh, one of the other things that we've been doing recently in Brighton Left is we opened another section of opposing ideologies. And uh, one of the uh, main writers for this, our friend Jack Lewis, uh, decided the other day to take on uh, his critique of communism, which has led to a very interesting debate on the website. Of course, as well on the website, we have Jack's free articles on the demise of Spain, uh, which are definitely uh, well worth a read. So, um, I'm going to take your view on this question, Jack. What do you think of now starting up this uh, different section of different ideas to flow? Do you feel this is inevitably helpful for debate, or are we risking losing some certain stances? It is a question which I've been you know, personally going over. How, to what extent, uh, do you allow the publication of other ideas on, a, or do you at some point need a space for certain ideas of a certain kind to flourish internally? Well, I think it's good, like, that's good to have opposing views um, shown in certain articles. And of course, like the website of Brighton Left, I'll have a comments section that people can use to to voice their opinions. But no, I think it's good. I mean, uh, like, uh, like, as long as other articles don't take away from the like from the main focus of Brighton Left and like and don't become the dominant theme, I can't see anything wrong with having like opposing views shown. Fair enough. No, I, I do tend to agree with Jack personally, as shown by the fact that I created the section. Um, no, but it is a very interesting topic, I do find, of how and to what extent you do need people to play the devil's advocate. Um, so, and it has led to a very interesting debate, which I would let uh, anyone to check out. So that was kind of just on a tangent there, which couldn't really go anywhere. Um, another topic which has been discussed, and this one I do want to delve into a bit more uh, deeper, uh, was the topic um, of class, which was published recently. And uh, in it, uh, the writer, uh, Georgina, argued that um, the present, uh, the past ideas of class, especially, let's say, from Marxian terms of having, you know, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat as the two main divisions of class, uh, don't really work in today's uh, modern world. And instead, let's say, um, and then she examined what we have as uh, the BBC's recent thing uh, of the seven different classes of um, Britain. And I believe, if we're very quick, we can just get this up for you. They were, just a second, here we go. Uh, the seven things they had, uh, having the elite at the top, the established middle class second, technical middle class, uh, new affluent workers, traditional working class, emergent service workers, and the precariat, which I believe I'm pronouncing right, hopefully. And this seven-class system is an interesting idea. And, I mean, it, it definitely, you know, always deserves some, some interest here, someone's new theory on everything. However, I believe it does seem to take away, and I'm not sure, would you agree, of the idea that 
it places class in a rather more subjective way. Or instead of there being, you know, A and B, as you have, let's say, in definitely a much more Marxist interpretation where you either own a means of production or you don't own a means of production, it has it as a very much of um, a spectrum and to climb up. And I believe this, this for me, raises uh, multiple issues. So firstly, the idea of do we always want a spectrum, which I believe we can take on to LGBT rights, and also the fact, um, the fact is with class, um, do are the traditional ways of looking at it uh, work? Does this new way of looking at it work? Or, as I believe Georgina argues, do we actually see that class is actually becoming more and more obsolete? And that actually in our modern role, uh, we're not really defined as much by our class and our social standing, but by a huge, m big, much more variety of things. For example, a much more variety in identity politics, politics perhaps, let's say, again, like to sexuality, ethnicity, religion, views, etc. So, um, you know, take up on that what you will. You know, I think it's, it's an interesting point to say um, that class is becoming obsolete and we're divided on other issues and, and other matters rather than... Other, other than our wealth, which I think actually is very true. I mean, I mean, I, it, it's perfectly easy for a working class person to mix with someone who's middle class or upper class. Like the reason that's sort of, or like, like or someone to marry someone or from you know, different class or whatever. Like it, we, like, we don't. Well, I at least I hope we hope we don't have the snobbishness and the prejudice that we once had. I think politicians would very much like class to stay because then they can play the class war and say that, like, that I, and say, oh, yes, you working class people aren't being represented, you middle class people, all you poor things, all, all you upper class bankers, you poor, poor, poor people. And, like, because then, cause then they, they give them a, a group to either demonise or a group to supposedly fight for. And so I think, you know, I actually would agree that class has become obsolete and really doesn't particularly matter as much as it did anymore. Mm. And I, I see where you're coming from on that standing. And I'd like to, however, say that, especially in the Marxist tradition, which I, I often do argue from, is the idea that class isn't really subjective in something, how you identify yourself as much. For example, if you say... Uh, I'm middle class, I'm working class. That isn't the primary thing which makes you working class and middle class. Instead, it's your relation to the capitalist society as a whole in how, let's say, you go around making your living effectively. Do you work for someone or do you work on your own or do you uh, work for someone or do you own? Are you the businessman? And I definitely feel that, especially in modern political talk, etc., that that idea has definitely been lost. But has it been lost as an idea? Has it been lost because the social things change? I mean, can we basically, effectively, define people on the jobs they do? Especially if you take a look at this um, BBC article and uh, how they've defined it, is the fact that they definitely put a lot of emphasis on culture. I'll try and get a quote. Uh, here we go can see that this is done done so well um for example established middle class the definition is largest class group and second wealthiest also score high culturally and socially um 
then you have emergent service workers, new young urban group who don't have much money but very socially and culture, uh, very social and cultural. They live for today, and that's entirely different. That is conceptually entirely different from what we have seen in the past. So again, I, I, again, as this conversation has been, it's a bit entirely, it's a bit uh, loose. I would want to come back to this thing that is what has been the demise of class, I suppose, but is this a good way to judge it? I mean, are we still um, divided by, or at least are the way we get our work, our living, are they still important factors? And I suppose I can see how people could argue uh, no. But Again, I suppose, what would you see as the reasons for leading to not having um, such, it, not having class as such an important factor, or not see, or seeing it as a much more subjective rather than objective? Mm. Well, with the idea of class being subjective, I would say that your economic class that is probably I might say not subjective, but, but your social class, yes, that that is completely subjective. It's whoever you feel connected with. It's whoever you like feel like that you belong with. Like is it this group of people? Is it that group of people? Like do you feel more like like a connection with those who who earn the same as you, those who earn less than you, those who earn more than you, and and that part is yes subjective. But I think a like if you look at how class in its importance has declined. I mean, you could go back quite a while, I mean, at least a hundred years. I mean, with the end of World War One, I, I mean, like, tradition started to fade. The old order, sort of, like, and the old ways almost started to decline with, with like, big, powerful families, like, like single families who had ruled so much of the world declining and ceasing to exist um, just like made the world realize that actually these things don't matter like there is like like I think now like I'd at least hope these days that in Britain it doesn't matter like like it like your your parents don't find issue with the class of someone you want to marry you can't you don't have to marry a well-born person you can marry whoever on earth you want and or and so I think this like the decline in those old-fashioned values has led to the decline in the importance of class. A few final thoughts as you were speaking. It's just an idea popped into my head. Um, we define defining this as, as as you did in two different ways. You have economic class and social class. And now the way we've defined it is these seem to be two independent variables as such. And I would say that definitely. Um, social class almost certainly would spring from the economic class and I suppose this is the thing isn't it is that as society has developed you can see how let's say the social class comes a lot more removed in a sense from the economic class I mean let's say if we go back maybe 100 200 years ago if you were rich you would have a completely different type of entertainment open let's say you could go to uh, the opera um listen to music etc I suppose modern music then it would be classical music now um, you could go abroad possibly on the holidays etc play sport well let's say and that 
would, and through that you'd meet other people doing the same, but that would be very highly dependent on your economic class. You couldn't, you couldn't do that if you were poor. If you were poor, you'd be stuck to, let's say, going to the pub, perhaps, perhaps a game of football in the streets, if that. Um, and I suppose we see that from that, social class definitely um, arises, definitely from economic class. But it's now that we start to get to our new modern age, where it's a lot easier and there's a lot more incentive for people to enjoy the same stuff. For example, it doesn't really matter how rich or poor you are, you can still like music and still like, the, or let's say, the best and newest music. And that's kind of, that's in a way accessible to all, especially in, let's say, the wealthy society. You know? I mean, it doesn't, um, unless you're highly conservative and traditional, you're going to like pretty much similar sorts of music as to people irrelevant of your standing. And I suppose this is then what allows us to now attack in concrete social class. But in re-envisaging this, as we do, in social and cultural ways. Um, we also need to keep in mind that these divisions have sprung from the economic class. And I, I'm going to argue that the economic class still exists. We still have, as you said, there are still divisions between rich and poor, etc. And because of that, I would say, is that we need to start, instead of, let's say, looking at these new ways uh, which the BBC have gone about in defining class, etc., uh, into elite, established middle class, instead of trying to combine these two in more or less no way, we need to actually look at what actually tells us what class someone is from, what is the defining factor, if we're going to look at it culturally, between the rich and the uh, poor. For example, it's not now that the rich go to operas and the poor don't etc or that uh, and the middle class don't it's it's very it's very different and I think that's that's possibly where the issue is arising from especially for me is that we need to take a look at that the old ways of defining someone's class especially through their cultural habits have changed drastically with new technologies and off the top of my head I can't see what you cannot use to identify but still the economic class still remains now that was a lengthy discussion and we'll be back after the break but we're first going to listen to Schools Out for Summer by Alice Cooper considering the lovely weather we've been having. Hope you enjoy.
welcome back to the Right and Left Radio Show. That was Alice Cooper, School's Out for Summer. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, one of the things we've now been told we have uh, to do the rest of the eight-minute show in four minutes, which is always a challenge. So do forgive us if there's another song unexpectedly. Uh, one of the other things we've been doing is Right and Left recently, and I feel we should share this experience uh, with everyone, is we went to this um, activism school at Sussex University, which I must say is a bit of a strange thing to go to, and I believe if anyone ever does anything like it, it's definitely an experience you remember. And I feel one of the main things I'd like to speak about this was I, def- I saw a very interesting uh, speaker, one of the people who was there, um, and his views on uh, uneven and combined development. And basically this idea was that as uh, societies develop, it doesn't just follow the, let's say, strand. It's, a, it's an idea of Trotsky. It's a Trotskyist idea, so it comes from the Marxist derivative. But instead of just following the strand that you go from feudalism to capitalism to uh, socialism, etc., um, it says that because all societies are developing at different paces around the globe and they also interact with each other, it allows for societies to develop in... Um, other different ways. For example, um, and that, for example, even though Russia had just barely scraped capitalism, it was still able to go through a socialist revolution because of the advancements and progress made in the rest of the world. And it's the idea that uh, because you get unevenness in the development of different nations, um, this unevenness can work back and kind of, in a way, push other nations up and allow them to skip stages and stuff. And I just felt that was quite an interesting idea to show. Again, we are very sorry for how perhaps this was, has been a little too relaxed. Now, um, again, I, I would uh, recommend going to that. Another idea, which I, I don't know, what, what do you think of this, Jack? Uh, one of the speakers we saw was a, a person who had an idea on the... that the world is effectively divided into two. The West... And the global south, sorry for northeast. Oh, we did love you. Um, and that the division is is that the main divider of what counts as the west and what counts as global south is who has the ability to uh, who has a British passport. And that such a passport um, allows you to that the British passport allows you to travel to I believe it's something of 170 different countries without a visa. Or is something like that, uh, and just travel there. Well, let's say a country like Afghanistan only has 24. And that this interconnectedness uh, allows people in the West and the Western world, the Britain, the United States, who have similar amounts, uh, let's say uh, Europe, etc., to have such freedom of travel that they effectively live in a completely different world to, let's say, people living in Asia, um, uh, Asia, South America, etc., Africa. Um, who have very limited in travel. And that this has kind of created, in itself, is a new neo-colonialism. I'm not sure... Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, machines just suddenly stop working a bit there. I'm not sure this is an accurate description, but definitely one worth interesting. And I'm sure we'll follow it up at some time. Again, some just more general thoughts. Where do you think Bright and Left is going, Jack? What would you like to see in Bright and Left? Well, I think that Bright and Left is, is doing well in the sense that we are publishing a lot... The radio shows are always every Sunday at four on the dot when they're made, and I, no, ten at four. <laughs> yeah, oh, no Monday at four. I did not know that. See, 
it's also educational. As you just learn something, you can learn a lot of Spanish history if you go to right and left as well. And 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 also it gives a, also I think it's also a good website for people to see political ideas that do not get a very strong voice in the wider public arena. Like you very rarely, very rarely, very rarely will see a communist interviewed on TV or a socialist. And so, and so it is very nice to, to, like, to see that, to understand more about those ideas. And so, and we're also growing slowly, but surely we are growing. And I think we are doing well. So, again, due to our um, the amount of time we have, uh, we're going to have to end it quickly here and play another song. Um, now, I hope you've all enjoyed today's uh, relaxed and quite tuned in uh, episode. We don't want to hit you too hard for the summer months. We hope you have a lovely summer. We hope you visit our website, w- uh, brightonleft.org.uk. Uh, subscribe to us on Mixcloud. Uh, continue listening to us on <laughs> Radio Free Brighton. And we just hope you have a lovely time. From me, Thomas Sood. And me, Jack Frost. So he was a bit delayed on that one. Okay, and we're going to play uh, something nice to end your... What number is this, Chip? Seven, eight. <laughs> okay, no, I mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short, I know. Oh, I could hide neath the wings of the bluebird as she sings. The six o'clock alarm would never ring. But it rings and I rise, wipe the sleep out of my eyes. My shaven razor's cold and it stings. Now you know how happy I can be Oh, and a good time starts and then Without dollar one to spend But how much, baby, do we Dream.